good. I just want to start by saying I am so, so thrilled that we have Bob Hustis back. He's here. Bob moved down to Carlsbad several months ago. He's not commuting anymore, so he got some of his life back. But man, we got life, Bob, from having you here today. The other thing that I wanted to make mention of is this incredible stage. Yes, come on. It looks like Disneyland, but this is Sunridge. And I don't know if he's still here, but Jerry Lund, uh, one of our volunteers, just like our worship team volunteers, amazing people with many other volunteers put this thing together. I can't tell you how awesome it was for me to come in during the last two weeks and see throughout our worship center, different people, middle schoolers, high schoolers, adults, it didn't matter, painting and cutting. And here is this beautiful, beautiful set. So what a great thing. We are continuing in a series called Psalms by the Numbers. And before I get there, I just remembered that I was supposed to share a pirate joke with you. So let me do that first. Uh, this past Friday, I was playing pirates with my kids for like two hours. And this morning when I walked in and I was talking to Bob Santee, one of our pastors on staff, Bob said, Jed, do you have a pirate joke? And I said, no, I, I don't really have a pirate joke. The only thing I could think of was like having a volleyball like Wilson, but that's a different thing. That was a plane crash. And so Bob said, well, here, here's one. Are you ready for it? And I'm going to share it with Bob's permission. What's a pirate's favorite letter? It's the sea the they love. <laughs> Walks the plank, matey. You were wrong. Oh, man, that, that's such a good one. I love it. First service didn't know it, but second service, apparently, you've heard it before. So good for you. Again, we're in Psalms. Uh, week one, Danny Sugimoto, our middle school pastor, did a great job teaching out of Psalm 3. Last week, our lead pastor, Britt, continued to knock it out of the park by teaching out of Psalm 19. And this morning, we are in Psalm 139. And a quote that Britt brought up last week that is so fitting for this series that he used to ground us comes from Athanasius, an early church father, some seen as the father of orthodoxy, who said... The other scriptures speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. I love that. The other thing Britt is having us do is a little nice-to-know section that belongs at the first part of our message that may or may not go with the sermon. And this morning, my nice-to-know piece is that the majority of the Psalms were actually meant to be publicly sung. The majority of the psalms, which were pieces of poetry, were actually songs as well. And they were either written to be sung or at some point evolved so that early communities would sing these together. Now there's something about music that's incredibly powerful. And before I speak to that, I'd like to put up a quote by Martin Luther, the great German theologian and reformer who said this with 16th century language, mind you. Music is to be praised as second only to the word of God because by her all the emotions are swayed. Nothing on earth is more mighty to make the sad gay as in happy and the gay sad to harden the downcast, mellow the overweening, temper the exuberant or mollify the vengeful. That is why there are so many songs and psalms. And Martin Luther himself was a prolific hymn writer. He wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he understood that there's just something about music that gets 
us. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but from a literal or scientific standpoint, all that music is are vibrations through space that are organized in a manner that when they hit our ears, they somehow impact us on the inside. Vibrations through space. I remember a college student who was going out to study music theory and Rena and I told him, hey, when you are in your first semester music theory class, I hope and pray at some point you are overwhelmed by the fact that there's a creative God who is behind music. It's transcendent. It gets humans regardless of who you are or where you are from. And then there's something about music that we do that is worshipful because I think its intention is to get us often to sing things that we perhaps might not want to sing. Maybe we are not in the place to sing words like we did last week where we say, you're never going to let me down or you've never let me down. And maybe when you sing words like that, Well, you don't sing them because you look at the circumstances in your life and it is a struggle to conceive of how God hasn't let you down because everything around you seems to testify to the fact that he has. But when you consider that publicly singing these worship songs are meant to be done as a community, we realize that what we deem as singular or personal is actually plural. There's something about God not letting all of us down, which we see first and foremost through Jesus Christ on the cross and rising from the dead. So there's that piece. Music is aimed at conceding or helping us concede, I should say, something. And the word concede means to admit or acknowledge something that we don't want to say is true. And so when I think about conceding, I think about our three little boys. I have a quick picture. I haven't shown you pictures of them in a while. So Oh, so good, so good. On the far left is our middle son, Titus. In the middle is our third-born, Truett. On the right is our first-born, Thadden. My wife, Mallory, is over there as they get their good looks from her. The reason why I share this picture is because our boys, they hate taking naps. They do not want to concede defeat to the fact that they are getting so tired that they are tantruming more often than normal. And so the backstory to this picture is one Friday afternoon where Mal's at work and the offices are closed Friday, so I'm here. The boys were starting to get a little bit tantrumish, and so I told them that it was time for them to nap, which of course they fought me about. Well, lo and behold, after 30 or so minutes of Thadden and Titus shushing and butt-patting Truett, he fell asleep and they fell asleep as well. Isn't that awesome? Great picture there. Uh, You can go to the next slide. Uh, This is a picture again of those same three boys. I show this picture because you can see they're flexing a little bit. And there's a lot of testosterone, that amazing hormone that is running through their veins and our family, so much so that before this picture was taken, they were actually tantruming again, uh, screaming and crying. You see, Truett normally just hangs out, rolls around, crawls in the middle, while the other two, they run back and forth and they race. Well, they hate to lose. And so when the other beats the other via cheating or regular means, however they do it, they start to cry because I won, no, I won, no, I won. And it is just so, so bad. But at some point after praying for their sinful souls, they get, I'm kidding, they find a way to get it together and here they are. They've conceded 
that it is okay to lose, it happens, and that they can get along and be great brothers. All right, pictures of my kids. Here I am, Psalm 139. I'm convinced that Psalm 139 concedes or admits or acknowledges a lot about us as human beings that we may not want to admit, just like my boys when they don't want to take a nap or they don't want to lose. So let me begin by reading the psalm that many of you are familiar with, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem in me. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. And here's the part that will come up on the screens that many of you are familiar with. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made." Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes beheld my unformed substance, and your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I'm still with you. If you have a hardcover Bible, why don't you just close it? You see, I believe that Psalm 139 concedes, it admits, it acknowledges that even though we are incredibly small, God has deemed us incredibly significant. Here's the deal. I hope at some point in your life, someone had the guts to tell you, maybe it was a parent or a teacher, something along these lines. I know it may surprise you, but the world doesn't revolve around you right? Or maybe you had that person say, you are not the center of the cosmos, right? That's an important thing to learn because as we develop as human beings, understandably so, we tend to see the world as only our world where everything that's happening ought to go our way and it's about us. And so it's important developmentally to realize at some point that there are 8 billion or so other people on this planet. It's a lot bigger than us and the cosmos is even larger, But what's unfortunate is that as we head into adolescence and young adulthood, sometimes that paradigm swings so far. You know, it's important for children to develop a healthy ego. That's why I don't tell my boys that they're not good at things. I want them to have confidence because without me even trying to tear them down, this world is traumatic enough where they will develop at some point thoughts and feelings and views and perceptions of themselves that are not accurate, that are not true. As a confident 
ish person, I'd be more inclined to run past this first part of Psalm 139. You know, when I was a kid and I came home from a Christian camp and told my mom that I wanted to be a pastor, her very first words were, you're not going to be a pastor, you're too cocky. All right? So it happened some way, somehow, by the grace of God. But here's the deal. I still experience seasons of depression and anxiety and body dysmorphia. And I remember looking into the mirror and feeling like I was not adequate. And maybe you know what that's like, too. Be wrong for me in a crowd this size to just assume that all of us have high self-esteem. Or all of us see ourselves correctly. In fact, I'd place a wager. I'd bet that every single person in this room at some point in time, if not right now, has struggled with how you view yourself and your concern about how others see you. Maybe you have looked at your vocation or career and you've wondered if it's going in the trajectory that you'd hoped it would. Maybe you see yourself as a parent and you wonder whether or not you're doing a good enough job. Perhaps you look at your checking account or your mutual funds, your Roth IRA, and there's not much there. I don't know what it is for you, but I bet you've struggled with your self-worth. And if you're in that place, Psalm 139 sings a song, and we can sing it together where we realize that we are in fact, some way, somehow, incredibly significant to a God who has created an ever-expanding universe. Isn't that quite a weighty thought? I was talking to Pam Dvorak, our women's ministry director before this, and she said, yeah, Jed, it's so easy for us to hear that scripture and to say, yeah, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But how many of us actually believe that and live in a way we see ourselves as God sees us? So that's where it begins. Now, Psalm 139 doesn't end there. But the way that it's been taught for so long seems to just prop us up to this place where we ought to realize he loves us and he believes in us, whatever it is, it's used as a self-help, life-inspiring type of passage, and there's certainly an element of that to it, but I want you to see something happens drastically that many people don't want to acknowledge. Here is how this song continues in verse 19. Maybe you didn't realize that after being fearfully and wonderfully made, David then writes this, Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God. You should be laughing. And that the bloodthirsty would depart from me, those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against for your evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, I still wonder how the early communities were singing this, right? You're singing this song about fearfully and wonderfully made, and the next thing you know, it's like, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. I can just imagine going, I don't know if I want to sing that. Can you imagine if this Sunday morning, if during the music, you know, you're worshiping, your hands up, and then the words flash on the screen, oh, that you would kill them, God, or I hate them with a perfect hatred. You're like putting your hands down, wondering if you joined a cult and if Sunridge has gone sideways. There's a reason why our songs don't mimic Psalm 139 in this manner anymore. Now, let me get at this at a few layers. Number one, contextually, this makes perfect sense for David. 
Okay, this is more than likely written at a time in his life where he's actually being pursued to the point of death by the current King Saul. We see that in the Psalms that follow. And so more than likely, David, as he is writing and journaling and praying, he does see that he is significant to God, so significant that God cares that his life is on the line. And so, of course, it is David's preference that God would take away the evil that are after him. He says, if only you would slay the wicked, O God. But for us, practically speaking, we do have to wonder what to do with a section of scripture like this. Because again, contextually, we can place it. But what about the contrasting words of Jesus? The one who is the true king, the one who comes 490 or so years later, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David. Look at how Jesus, in his first sermon that we have, that's recorded in Scripture, at least, in Matthew chapter 6 writes, and mind you, he was very well, well aware of his Scriptures, and the people, the disciples that were listening, would have been attuned to the Psalms and David's writings. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you hear what Jesus said at the beginning of that? You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say unto you. So here's what Psalm 139 concedes to me in this section. It concedes that we struggle to see others the same way. In other words, it's important for us as human beings to get to a place where we certainly believe that we have been created in the image of God, that we are valuable to him, that we are significant, but ought we not look at the world around us, the people around us, and see them the same way? I think we are, but I think we struggle to do that. I think whether it is political or social or economical or racial or lifestyle-wise, whatever it is, you and I struggle to see people around us in the same way that we ultimately see ourselves. There's a reason why David as a human being is able to believe that he is special to God, but these people ought to depart from the face of the planet. And here's the deal. For you and me, I hope that you're not praying that that coworker or that in-law or that spouse or whomever it is, that person that you see on the news, I hope you're not praying that God would just rid them from the face of the planet, right? But I bet, I bet you've had thoughts that are pretty close. And if we read Jesus earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we'd, we'd hear that if we've thought hatred, if there's hate there, we've already killed him. Jesus speaks to us as human beings and our propensity to not see others the way that we want ourselves to be acknowledged 
and seen. And Psalm 139 shows that. I'd like to bring you to Matthew chapter 7 just a little bit later, where Jesus says these words, Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Let me review something. Last week, Britt said this. When God reveals himself, we then see ourselves more clearly. And is there any clearer of a revelation of who God is than Jesus? God incarnate, God in the flesh, Jesus. Is there any clearer revelation of who God is and what he desires for us? And Jesus tells this story. He gives this command by way of hyperbolic language. And hyperbole is meant to attune our ears to the fact that what is being said is so ridiculous, it is not possible. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says, do not judge, he's giving a definitive statement, right? Don't do it. And judgment here is in regards to seeing whether or not salvation or deliverance is ought or should be given to a person. Do not judge. Then he says, for with the measure that you judge. In other words, knowing that we are going to judge, you will be judged. And he says this, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? How many of you have ever had some dust fly into your eye? It's annoying, right? You're rubbing it out. You're trying to rub it out. Your eye's getting more red by the moment. So that's possible. How many of you have woken up with a log in your eye? I mean, seriously, how many of you woke up one morning and looked in the mirror and like cracked the mirror with the two by four coming out of your eye? And if you have, I, I'd like to meet you. It's, it's not possible to wake up one morning and find a log in your eye. The hyperbolic language of Jesus here is contrasting what is possible and what's impossible. You cannot wake up with a log in your eye. It speaks to the depth of our personal depravity and sin. I cannot work to get a log out of my eye. Because if I were to try to remove a log from my eye, in the act of trying to expunge it, I would bleed myself to death. It wouldn't happen. There's no surgeon in the world who would be able to help me remove that. Oh, except for a person who carries a log to the hill and dies on it. Perhaps someone we know is Jesus. And when I read this, I'm reminded that Jesus is saying, you think you can get to step two, but that's not the point. And when he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. In rabbinic tradition, this is a great opportunity for the disciples to dialogue with Jesus. And I can show you other places in scriptures that would show that Jesus is clear that you can't do that. You can't determine that. for some, You can't fix the other. Let him do what only he can do. And can you imagine if every single one of us actually became aware of the depth of our own sin and depravity? Can you imagine if we ourselves were consumed by what was wrong with us and then we remembered that, of course, deliverance isn't found in ourselves or in another, but only in him? Are you seeing how it's important for us to admit that? So here's a question that I have for you. Are we singing 
because we are safe or we believe in a God who can save. Some people might hear this message and think, well, you don't look at sin heavily enough. And I'm saying, oh, I do. I know myself. I love when Paul writes towards the end of his life, here is a trustworthy saying that is deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus died for sinners of whom I am the worst. I love how this person who writes letter after letter who is clear about what sin is at the end of his life acknowledges that there's no one worse than himself, which there's no way to measure that. But do you see the point there? If we really believe in a God who can save, perhaps we should look at the world around us and people that we are uncomfortable about the grace of God moving towards. That's actually possible. When the disciples asked Jesus, well, who can be saved? Jesus says, was man, this is impossible. It was God. All things are possible. Let me take you to a section of scripture where Jesus uses the word hypocrite again, just like he did there. And he says this in Matthew chapter 23, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Do you feel the tension there? Are we locking people out of the kingdom? Are we stopping people from the only one who can remedy what's wrong with us? Here's what Psalm 139 concedes to me. Psalm 139 concedes that there's still so much grace for us to see and discover. You know, earlier when we sang, there was a song called Reckless, and Bob alluded to it just a little bit about how God's love appears reckless to us. And I've talked to many who have said, I like how that song sounds, but it doesn't seem biblically accurate. God isn't uncalculated. He knows what he's doing. Let me read you Luke chapter 15, which is partly where that song is inspired from. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable and he goes on to say, which one of you having lost or having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I've found my sheep that was lost, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See what Jesus is doing there? What he is doing, hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors, seems incredibly reckless to the religious. It seems so incredibly wrong. It is off-putting. And so he tells them this parable, which doesn't make sense. A shepherd wouldn't leave his 199 sheep to find one. He wouldn't do that, but that is the audacity, what we'd say, maybe the scandal of God's grace. He goes and pursues, and the question that I have to ask myself is, if his grace is sufficient for me, and I really believe that, then is there anyone else on this planet who could not find? and discover, and be found by him. 
Is there anyone that I would want to lock out because they don't see things the way that I see them or live the way that I do? Or maybe I can actually believe in a God who says that he begins it, he continues it, he finishes it. It seems reckless. But isn't that why we sang with passion? I want to tell you a quick story about an amazing couple that is normally here during first service. Bob and Mark Carlson normally sit in that section. And if you don't know the Carlsons, you need to come to first service someday so that you can meet them. They unfortunately weren't here today. This is part two of a story that I'll continue to finish in two weeks when I teach again. Bob and Marg are in their 90s. Bob just turned 97, and I think Marg is 94 or 95. They've been married for 75 years, my friends, okay? So a few months ago, we were with some of our young adults from 1824, which is our college age ministry, and we called up Bob and Marg and asked if we could come over for our Rooted Serve project and hang out with them. And Marg was super excited because she loves to hang out. You know, it's been fun to have tea with Bob and Marg, with Mal and our boys. And they stop every morning around 10 or 11, and they have tea. They pull out all the fine china. They have teapots that are heavy. I don't know how they carry. They're so strong. When I pick them up, it's like, whoa, how are you carrying that, Marg? They have all the cookies. I mean, it is just awesome. And so we go over there, and we clean up a little bit, but Marg was just really persistent. This was about us having tea together, not us serving them. And so after about an hour or so of doing things in their yard and cleaning the windows, we come and sit down around this table. And Bob is at one head, and Marg is at the other. And we asked Bob and Marg if they would kindly share some wisdom with us, something that we wouldn't want to forget. And so Bob says something, which if you come back in two weeks, you'll hear what Bob said. Oh, whoa, whoa. And then Marg says something. When I asked Marg, what, what's the one thing you wouldn't want us to forget? The very first words out of her mouth were this. Oh, but for the grace of God. Oh, but for the grace of God. I mean, does it get any better than that? Someone who at 90-something years of life would still believe that the best, most surprising thing is the grace of God. And I turned to Marg and I said, hey, Marg, do you mind if I use that in a sermon someday? And then, without hesitation, she said this. Your life is your sermon. I mean, mic drop, come on. Anyone else have chills? Your life is your sermon. What do we do about that? What kind of sermon are we preaching? What kind of song are we singing? It doesn't matter if you're on this stage or on the floor. You must realize that none of us are different. God shows no partiality. We are all created in his image. We all are the ones that he pursues and goes after. 
The grace of God is so paradoxical, it doesn't make sense. The holiness of God doesn't make sense. It is paradoxical. In other words, it seems contradictory at its core. We preach the good news by saying there is a holy God who created everything and was meant to be in relationship with us, but because of sin, we are separated from this God because God cannot be in the presence of sin. But what is so ironic about the good news, what is so paradoxical about this is that God does the most unholy thing. He comes to be in the presence of sin and sinners. And so if you want to talk about being holy, as Peter writes, be holy as I am holy, quoting God, what does it look like to be holy? What does it mean to be set apart? Oh, in the kingdom, this upside down, paradoxical, nonsensical, illogical thing to be holy as God is holy is to perhaps do the thing that seems unholy and go and be with those who we, we might want to lock out. But Jesus is saying, let them come to me. Who is that person? Who are those people? that you struggle to sing deliverance over, whom you actually under your breath might want to say, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Psalm 139 concedes there's still so much grace for us to discover, and that's why I'm so glad that David closes it out this way. In verse 23, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love how human David is. I love that he can sing, that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet, in the same breath, he's asking God to slay the wicked. And then he would say, but search me, O God. Know me. See if there's a wicked way in me. Now, again, I'm not saying there is not wicked, that there is not evil. I've walked off this stage to have a student come and share that at the party on Friday she was raped. I've sat across from people in my office who are battling the power and stronghold of addiction. I've sat across people who have spouses or friends or coworkers who continue to propagate things about them that are so insanely hurtful and untrue. I have been with people in the presence of evil, but I know if there's anyone who can deal with that, it's Jesus. And I also know that at some point in his life, David realized that too. Britt's going to be teaching on this next week, and I, I want you to come back and hear it. It's going to be so important. But listen to Psalm 51, where David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know that David wrote this later on in his life after he had an affair after he had the husband of that woman killed at the front line of battle. There are other nuances of that story that make it absolutely ridiculous. We are talking about King David, who does an incredibly, insanely evil, wicked thing. And after he is confronted by it in a crazy way, you can read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Get to it. 
he writes a little different. The song he sings a little different, yes? Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. Notice that David isn't saying that the wicked are slain anymore. He's saying he's going to teach them about God's ways, that sinners will return to him. His tongue will sing aloud of his deliverance. There's a reason why this Sunday morning, when we sang about the reckless love of God, midway through, you didn't start shouting that the wicked would be slain. Because if there is no shadow that he wouldn't light up, no mountain he wouldn't climb up, right? No wall he wouldn't kick down, no lie he wouldn't tear down coming after you, then I'm pretty sure there's a world around you that needs to hear that and receive that. And God forbid that we would be the hypocrites that would lock people out of the kingdom of God. There's a different song for us to sing. And it sounds a lot more like Psalm 51. It sounds a lot more like the end of Psalm 139 where we say, search me and know me. Oh God, I want to sing a song of deliverance. It's a great song. And if it seems uncomfortable, it is. And yet that is what is so incredible about who God is. Would you sing this song with me? That this holy God does the unholy thing, that he comes, that he does not spare his life, that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. And would you join me in beginning to be transformed and believing that there's repentance, a changing of mind to be experienced by this world around us. And if you and I sing this song of deliverance, Jesus will do the work that only he can do. The Holy Spirit will do the work that only he can do. God will do what only God can do. And you and I can sing out loud together. Let's pray.